For this fourth Sunday in Lent, we turn to something you would think, the Gospels. Another story where Jesus is trying to point us in the right direction. It isn't that the story of all of our lives all the time. But in these particular verses, we've heard them over and over again. Might they be new to you today? John 3, 14 through 21 It's listed in your pew Bible in the New Testament, page 94, if you'd like to follow along. Listen for the word of the Lord for you today. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of God be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all those who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light, so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true, they come to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? O Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable to your sight. O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Personally, I'm a Coca-Cola drinker. Now, I know some of you might be Pepsi drinkers out there. Let's find out. The age-old question, do you prefer Coke products or Pepsi products? Raise your hand if you enjoy Coke products. It's a good half, at least. More on the choir side. That's an interesting fact. We should document that. What about Pepsi products? Where are those? Few and far between. That's fairly interesting. I remember quite a few years ago, they even had the Pepsi Coke challenge where you could go to a festival of some sort and they would blind taste test you. Oftentimes people would choose the Pepsi because it is a little bit sweeter. Sometimes people would choose Coke because it's the real thing. Who knows? I am a little bit mad at United Airlines several years ago. They changed over to Pepsi products, but not as mad as one of my seatmates, though a flight attendant said, what would you like to drink? Oh, I would like Pepsi. Or I would like Coke. Is Pepsi okay? Oh, no. Oh my goodness, you thought that there was a real problem having, but it's just a Pepsi product, it's just a Coke product. They found something to drink. I think they settled on cranberry juice. But let's think logically about this, since we're all thinking about Pepsi and Coke this morning. If a Pepsi person tries to get me to be a Pepsi person, they usually say, try it, you'll like it. And they'll try to move me let's just use numbers, from a one, because I don't really like Pepsi, 
to a two on the scale of one to six. Maybe they'll try to move me to a three. And they'll simply say something like, try it, you'll like it, maybe some bargaining mechanisms. I have one right here. It's my house. I'm the hospitable one here. But actually, that just makes me more entrenched as a Coke person. And if you say, well, what if we were on a desert island? What would you then drink? I'll probably still say, no, never, never, never. I like my Coke products. Let's say you're a two as a Coke person, and you're trying to get persuaded to become a six. There's something called the contrast effect. It says that 80% of the time, you're going to move backwards. Move from a two to a one. They've tried to move me too far away from my initial attitude. And to be honest, it's not about Coke, and it's not about Pepsi. It's about truth and what I value and what my initial attitude was from the get-go. The contrast effect is if someone tries to push me too hard, I have a sense of being attacked and I want to flee. It's an internal response. Maybe you've felt this before. Sometimes it's subconscious. But on the flip side, let's say if you're a two and they don't try to move you from Coke to Pepsi, They try to just move you to, maybe you prefer Coke, but you don't mind Pepsi. Maybe from a two to a three. This is more called the assimilation effect. And people say, 80% of the time, you'll actually go in that direction. Why? It's called homeostasis, the tendency to maintain balance. It's more of a psychological principle of we want things to remain mellow. We want things to be cool. We don't want to change, but we also don't want to be obnoxious. And so we'll move to preferring because we want to maintain homeostasis. That's my relationship with you at the moment. This is true in any conversation you might have, probably deeper than just Coke or Pepsi. It's true in advertising and teaching, sermon preaching, evangelistic events, and really any human interaction that we might have, as long as you're trying to get someone to have a different opinion. The key here is also to try to be a buddy with someone. It's the key in the relationship, because it's the relationship that they don't want to make waves in, and that's what causes them to have the assimilation effect and go from a two to a three rather than going backwards and digging their heels in. And in terms of faith and the Christian culture, it's been shifted in Christianity. When you bring up Christianity, some have negative feelings and some have positive feelings, but usually it's not Christ that is the problem. Oftentimes, it's the Christian that's the problem, and they're dealing with the contrast effect versus the assimilation effect. We want to close the deal. We want to move our friend because we know of the great love of Jesus. We want to move them to a three or even a four or a six. We need to use the assimilation effect so that 80% of the time, they'll move in the direction that Jesus is calling them to. Because most people think 
that theological arguments will win the day. If I share Christ, it needs to be an intellectual thing. And John 3.16 is the most quoted verse in these conversations. Even non-Christians are familiar with the verse, and they take their initial attitudes as an appeal. Where are they on a scale at the beginning is what we should be asking. Did they strongly agree, or were they undecided? Where was the relationship that you were thinking of that maybe a friend dug their heels in, or maybe they moved on the scale? You see, it's not simply about Christ. It's about our relationship with the person, and then Christ will do the rest of the work. This scale is something that we used actually in the Worship 365 survey. It's called the Likert scale by a guy named Likert several years ago. It's a range, then you've seen them, that captures the intensity of where you are, whether you strongly disagree, you're undecided, or you strongly agree. But it's the relationships that will move someone from liking Coke to Pepsi. It's a relationship that will move someone from not knowing anything about Jesus to moving a step forward in their relationship with him. And being in a safe Christian community like this is a wonderful place for them to keep moving on the scale. So John 3.16 is the quintessential verse. I've seen this verse on baseball games, stuck on cars, bumper stickers, even tattooed to friends. Of course, it's a memorized verse in Sunday school, and it's shouted on the corner by evangelists. I always get a little giggle when I'm sitting next to someone and they notice on the bottom of their in-and-out cup that it also says John 3.16 there. It's been 15 years, but it's still interesting to see that some people don't know that. Some might call John 3.16 the gospel in a nutshell. Something so easy, it's something that we have as rote memorization, a verse that is close to our hearts, perhaps we note it in song, perhaps you have it tattooed on you. It's two sentences that are summed up the entirety of the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. It's good news. It's good news. God's love is so abundant, and God calls us to share that love with one another. But John chapter 3 has more than just one verse in it. Many people might be very familiar with that verse, but certainly not the ones preceding it, and definitely not the ones past it. What does it mean when Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the servant in, serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Such a confusing verse right before. Jesus is talking about his death. Let's think about the serpent being put forward in front of a group of people and the imagery of Jesus being put forward in front of a group of people. The symbol comes from Numbers chapter 21. It includes the story of Moses lifting up the snake for the Israelites who are wandering in the wilderness. Remember in Exodus? They're growing impatient. 
Year after year, they were hiking around the Sinai Peninsula. They don't like the food, they don't like the water, and there's not enough of it. And in one of those classic Hebrew Bible moments, God responds to their complaints by sending poisonous snakes. It's kind of like treating a broken arm by smashing the patient's foot with a hammer. Your arm may not feel better, but you're too busy complaining about your foot to complain about it. So in this case, the poisonous snakes are biting people, and it gave the Israelites some perspective. They certainly stopped complaining about the quality of the food and started praying to God to contain the snakes. So in response, God told Moses, make a poisonous serpent, set it on a pole so that everyone who is bitten will come to this place, look at it, and live. So Moses made a serpent out of bras. He took it, put it on a pole, and whenever a serpent would bite someone, that person would go to the serpent of bronze, look at it, and they would live. That's the immediate background that John, the gospel writer, has in mind. Just as Moses lifted up a bronze serpent to cure people bitten, by the snakes, God also lifted up Jesus so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. We might want to think about how we are. Are we in the desert complaining about this or that? Not enough water and not enough food. And God brings something in our life to redirect our focus to God. Now, ironically, the bronze serpent had originally been built to remind the Israelites to focus and trust God, to be healed by God, literally, to stop complaining about all of these minor inconveniences like food and water. And we hear about the snake again later in the Old Testament in Hezekiah. That same bronze serpent that we heard about before probably not the same one, but a good relic, a good facsimile of one, the Judeans actually had placed it in their temple and they were worshiping it like an idol. Worshiping the servant, serpent like an idol. That's not what God intended it for at all. That's not what God intended, something that was supposed to point ourselves to Jesus, not to be our Lord and Savior. So we've dove in. We've heard that it was the snake with Moses. We've heard that it was a problem with, in Hezekiah. Something that no longer points to God is something that we shouldn't be. Something that no longer points to God is something that we shouldn't be. If you want to be healed, go visit the bronze snake in the temple. But it's not simply a formula. How often do humans get in the way of Jesus for others? How often do humans get in the way of Jesus for others? I'll end with this story because it sums it up in a way that makes us think about how are we in our relationships with others and our way that we bring people to Jesus. Joe was a drunk who was miraculously converted in the streets in a mission in downtown L.A. 
I heard about him on a mission project that I was on several years ago. And before his conversion, he retained, remained, gained a reputation as a wino who was not able to get his life together. No hope. But following his conversion to Christ, everything changed. Joe became the most caring person at that mission, doing whatever needed to be done. There was never anything that he didn't do or that he considered beneath him, whether he was cleaning up vomit left by some sick alcoholic or scrubbing toilets. Joe did everything with a heart of gratitude, and he could be counted on. He could be counted on. He even tucked some people into bed. One evening, the mission director delivered a great message. I'm sure it was inspiring. Moved people in their seats to accept Jesus. And there was in the crowd a sullen man with a drooped head, and he looked down, and the pastor came over to him and kneeled, and he was crying and praying. He said, Oh God, make me more like Joe. Make me more like Joe. And the pastor said, well, don't you mean, and I was preaching about it for the last 20 minutes, don't you mean that you should be more like Jesus? And then after a few moments, the man looked up and said, is he like Joe? Yeah, Jesus is like Joe. And Russell and Elizabeth and Judy and Karen and Isabel and Jeff and Barbara. And on and on, the answer is yes. Jesus is like Joe. It's actually that Joe is like Jesus. But in that moment, in that time, in that period, Joe was the representation of who Jesus was in this world. And it's that kind of relationship that will move people. It's not fancy quote saying, it's not knowing your Bible inside and out. It's the way you live your life and the relationships that you have that move people, that change people, and grow people from somewhere on the Likert scale to not liking Jesus, moving them through to being undecided about Jesus, to eventually loving Jesus. What are you going to do today to help someone get to know Jesus even better? Amen and amen.